Welcome to this Vet Girl podcast. I am Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, board-certified emergency and critical care specialist and co-founder of Vecrol. Today, we are going to be discussing the diagnostic approach to hypoalbuminemia. Hypoalbuminemia is a common problem seen by the small animal veterinarian. It's important to understand that albumin is the major determinant of oncotic pressure, otherwise known as colloid osmotic pressure. This is the main pressure, the main force that holds fluid within the vascular space. Without this oncotic pressure, important osmotically active particles in the bloodstream, such as sodium, urea, and glucose, can pass freely between that vascular and interstitial compartment. We see third spacing. Albumin is much larger than these molecules, can't pass freely through that vascular endothelium, and remains within the bloodstream, preventing third spacing by providing this oncotic pressure. What's normal? The normal albumin range for dogs is somewhere between 2.6 to 3.5 grams per deciliter. Cats are about the same, 2.8 to 3.9 grams per deciliter. And yes, we can subcategorize drops in albumin, mild, moderate, or severe, but the reality is once we get lower than 2.0 grams per deciliter and certainly less than 1.5 grams per deciliter of our albumin level, that's when we classify that as severe hypoalbuminemia and we worry about third spacing of fluids, interstitial edema, and even effusions in body cavities such as pleural or peritoneal effusion. Once a patient is identified as being hypoalbuminemic, on your blood work of course, the clinician's next general thought is the why. Why do they have such a low albumin? Provided it's not lab error of course, and while this is not going to be an exhaustive list, here are some common causes for hypoalbuminemia. Liver failure, as that's the primary organ responsible for making albumin gastrointestinal disease and protein loss, such as protein-losing enteropathy, otherwise known as PLE, renal protein loss, commonly a protein-losing nephropathy, otherwise known as a PLN, hypoadrenocorticism, otherwise known as Addison's disease, external losses including hemorrhage, or even, for example, burns, severe third-degree burns hyperglobulinemia. That can result in a compensatory decrease in albumin production as the globulin level is so high. And finally, differentials such as starvation, malnutrition, or other chronic illnesses where the body is focused on production of other factors. The list continues, but those are the more common differentials to consider. While this list of differentials can be overwhelming, fortunately, the diagnostic approach to hypoalbuminemia is not overwhelming. In fact, it's straightforward. Considering some of the causes we discussed above, let's think about them. If you're septic, a peritonitis, a pyothorax, if you have an open pyometra, if you have severe skin burns, those are often evident on either initial history or examination and can either be ruled in or ruled out pretty quickly. Take another discussed cause, hyperglobulinemia. You likely would have identified that on your blood work as well. Typical hyperglobulinemia 
oh, adrenocorticism, typical Addison's disease. You would have seen notable electrolyte changes such as hyponatremia and hyperkalemia. Yes, atypical Addison's disease, atypical hypoadrenocorticism may require further testing such as a baseline cortisol or ACTH stimulation test. But a lot of differentials we talked about can be either ruled in or ruled out based on your history, examination, and initial blood work. Once these causes are either ruled out or ruled in, we essentially leave ourselves with three remaining causes for hypoalbuminemia, liver failure, protein-losing enteropathy, and a protein-losing nephropathy. Let's talk about liver failure first because liver failure may be something that we see on our blood work as well. If it's severe, you may find not only hypoalbuminemia, but also low globulin levels, a low blood urea nitrogen, hypoglycemia, hyperbilirubinemia, and elevation of liver values such as ALT and alkaline phosphatase, ALKP. If you are concerned that there is liver disease, abdominal imaging such as ultrasound would be a next step to consider. Abdominal x-rays may also help. They're going to be eh, a little less helpful than ultrasound, but ultimately, we're using these imaging tools looking for liver size and liver structure. Other liver tests to consider would be liver function testing, such as a resting ammonia or bile acids test. Aside from our history, examination, and blood work as we talked about, one of the next general tests I would consider would be a complete urinalysis, including a urine sediment evaluation. Normal patients have little to no protein in their urine. If there is little to no protein in the urine, we can essentially rule out that PLN case. With that said, we should consider their protein level in light of the urine-specific gravity. For example, trace to one plus protein may be normal in well-concentrated urine greater than a specific gravity of 1035, 1.035. Alternatively, if you add one plus protein in a dilute urine sample, that could be significant. Why did I mention complete urinalysis, including a urine sediment? Because we have to look for evidence of an active sediment, potentially an infection, because this could indicate lower urinary tract disease and that protein level is very hard to interpret if you have a UTI present. For that reason, we should clear up that UTI and then reevaluate the protein level after appropriate therapy. If there is a concerning amount of protein within the urine, the next step I would consider is a urine protein creatinine ratio, a UPC test. That's a good predictor of a 24-hour protein excretion, and it's much easier to obtain and then confirm the diagnosis of that PLN. Last but not least, let's then talk about PLE, a protein-losing enteropathy, and gastrointestinal disease. If a patient has gastrointestinal signs with normal renal and liver function, that to me would suggest a PLE, particularly if you also see a low globulin level. With that said, I've also personally diagnosed PLE patients that have little to no GI history no vomiting, and no diarrhea. So how do we diagnose a PLE? You can consider tests such as fecal parasitology, a serum TLI, folate, and B12 levels, but ultimately the main way, the most diagnostic way to get to the bottom of this is with intestinal biopsies. Since biopsies are often 
costly and invasive. That's why I want to rule out liver disease. That's why I want to rule out renal disease. That's why we look at diagnostics that are less invasive and less costly first, working our way up to this if indicated. Ultimately, while hypoalbuminemia can be a challenging process to diagnose, I hope this was a good systematic and clear approach to not only understanding what can cause a low albumin level, but a clear approach on how to work through these cases.